0: Let's continue worship with a reading from John 3, 1-8. through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless it is with him. God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I tell you, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. Glad you're here with us today. If you're a guest, welcome. My name's Chris. I'm on staff here at Riverstone. We've been in an ongoing conversation about the biblical portrait of the Holy Spirit. We've been combing through the Bible and trying to ask the question. Uh, What does the Bible actually say about the Holy Spirit? Because what we find most often is our ideas and thoughts and conclusions about the Holy Spirit come rather not from the Bible, but rather from hearsay or maybe you've experienced something or went to a certain church that thought about it this way or a conversation you had. And we've just been asking a really simple question. um, What does the Bible actually say about the Holy Spirit? Who is he? What does it say? He does. What kind of influence does he have? And we've been addressing our struggles and hesitancies um, when it comes to being someone uh, full of the Holy Spirit. And we focused on a lot, and we focused primarily up to this point. Our, and when it comes to our hesitancies uh, uh, about the bad press on the Holy Spirit. A lot of bad press out there about who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, right? And today, we're going to sit with the struggle um, with the language of the Bible itself uh, when it comes to helping us think about who the Holy Spirit is. The Bible tells us um, he's a spirit. Uh, The KJV, the official Bible, which... I was told a joke the other day, something about, you know, it's okay if you don't read the KJV now, but when you get to heaven, you will be given one. Um, the KJV says he's a ghost, the Holy Ghost. So your mind begins to think, um, do, I, do I know any ghosts? What do they do? And our understanding of a ghost is when someone dies and then their disembodied spirit comes back. Uh, uh, do you see sixth sense? Sixth sense? You saw that, right? Maybe you're a little older and you saw a poltergeist. Anyone? Uh, I didn't, couldn't handle that as a kid. I saw Cast with the Friendly Ghost, that was more my speed. Uh, or maybe you've seen one of the hundreds and hundreds of TV shows about the paranormal. There are so many, so many. Oh my gosh, you guys, have you guys watched these? Come on, fess up, you've watched these. Yeah, how can you not? You're like, really, is it real? Did it really happen? Oh, let me see it on video, right? Or maybe you saw uh, the, the OG of ghost stories. Uh, the original, right? Uh, this is the fodder in our culture imagination when we think of ghosts or spirits, is it not? So, but this is the Holy Ghost. So this ghost must, he must be wearing like Pope paraphernalia or something like that. I'll be honest. A lot of that stuff's not helpful. But this is how we make connections and how we understand things. We see a word and we connect it to what we know about that word. What do I know of supernatural ghosts and spirit? Well, I saw Ghostbusters. What do they do? Well, they're disembodied spirits. You can't see them. They move things around like they haunt old houses. They freak people out. Is that what the Holy Ghost does? Well, not so much. I mean, he does freak people out, but maybe for different reasons. And we're already at a little bit of a disadvantage when we start reading the Bible and we see words like spirits and ghosts because of the cultural fodder that that we have in our minds when it comes to those things. But here's the thing about the Bible. It wasn't written in English. Also, Jesus wasn't white, and Christianity does not belong to America, but those are kind of side notes. But all of these things can trip people up. The Bible was primarily written in two languages, Hebrew and Greek, and some of you just went to sleep as soon as I said that sentence. The English word, ghost, does not appear. Anywhere in the Bible, Old or New Testament, nor does any English word, because it's not written in English, you are getting a translation. And translators are tackling the difficult job of finding language equivalents to the words that are actually written, right? Which is sometimes really challenging because number one, the meaning of words can change over time. Hebrew, Greek, English, all change, even in Hebrew. Hebrew, there is a language, Hebrew today, that is the official language in Israel. That is not, they've differentiated between modern Hebrew and ancient Hebrew. The language changes over time, right? The other big challenge translators have is the nature of language itself, which is this, okay? The same words can mean different things to different people. It's why communication is the number one breakdown in all relationships, right? Just trying to communicate simple things to your spouse or friends can be a moving target, okay? So my wife says to me, do you want to take out the trash? And my answer is no. What person in their right mind wants to take out the trash? But that is not what she actually said. So when I interpret what she said into what I call married English, which is very different from normal English, right? What she really said is, the trash is overflowing, do something about it right now or face my wrath, okay? See, but in normal English, she said, do you wanna take out the trash? You have to translate. Guys, apparently Google is coming out with a translate for this. So there's good news for us all. No, there's a communication breakdown, is there not? Simple communication is a moving target. Now, just imagine the challenge of the biblical translators, right? We should have charity on our friends that have done a lot of work in translating from old ancient language to modern language for us to understand and comprehend. So let me just back these up with with some simple points. The meaning of words can change drastically over time. I was just reading The Hobbit to my child. Hobbit was only written 60, 70 years ago, right? Tolkien kept using queer to mean strange, I'm reading it to my eight-year-old. So every time it comes up, I have a mini crisis and I'm stuttering and I'm like, there was a tsk, 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 strange, there's a strange noise. There's a strange noise coming from the, because words change over time. Are we chatting? Okay, language does that. It changes. They have Okay, the other thing, so the other point is that the same words can mean different things to different people via associations, correct? So I have a silly example and a serious example. Silly example, I hate the word moist, I have no reason to hate it. I just hate it. I don't like how it sounds. Do I like moist cake? Yeah, it's better than dry cake. I just don't want to use the word moist to describe it. Okay? Now, that's silly. Okay? It's not really uh, defining a word differently. It means having a weird association with the word. A serious example uh, of this is the word father. Uh, God, Jesus, calls more than any other person in the Bible, Jesus calls God Father. All right. Uh, He's trying to get something across to us, isn't he? Mark Rutland tells a story about uh, that really struck me. He was going to pray for a girl after a service and she comes up for prayer and her hair is kind of over her eyes, her head's down. She's weeping. And Mark says, hey, let's pray to our heavenly father. And the girl looks up and he sees that her face is bruised, badly bruised. And she says, sir, I have all the father I can handle. So, Words can become and mean different things for different people, can't they, right? That her understanding of father is not safety, security, protection, love, and support. Language can be very subjective, and it's why communication is so hard even amongst friends. So how then can we approach the Bible knowing the idea we have in our head is the same idea the authors had in their head? Because words do mean something. Or rather, more specifically, as Tim Tim Mackey says, people mean something when they say words. And there is a very concrete, objective reality that we are trying to get at when we read the Bible. And the authors are trying to get at, how can we know that we have the reality in our heads that they had in their heads? Well, intelligent, thoughtful theologians and translators have grappled with challenges like these for years, okay? Okay. And if we are to, they have said, if we are to understand what uh, a certain word means in ancient Hebrew or in Greek, okay, we have to let, this is what they've come up with. They say, we have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Now, since that makes perfect sense to all, let's pray. Jesus, that's just me. No, <laughs> what do they mean? Well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Sounds like circular reasoning, right? right? Make, let the Bible interpret the Bible. sounds almost like self, you know, right? what do they mean? Well, okay, this is what they mean. If you back up and look at all the places in the Bible where a particular word is used in the original language, then we start to get this collective idea, this sense of, oh, They mean this. The author clearly means this. And the modern equivalent would be this, okay? Now, this is really what we're gonna wrestle with today is how the authors have translated it and then are the associations we have in the the words. Now, I know, like I said, some of you have already checked out when I said the challenges of translators from Hebrew and Greek, you know, you're just like, whatever. But I think many of you will find this uh, meaningful and maybe even helpful. So every time you see the word spirit or ghost in the Bible, you are either getting the Old Testament Hebrew word ruach, or the New Testament Greek word pneuma, okay? This is the original, now we're getting real nerdy, I know. Um, In the New Testament, the KJV almost always translates the word pneuma into ghost. If you have a KJV, you're gonna see that word. Now, just about every other modern translator has said, yeah, that's probably not the best since the 80s and Ghostbusters came out. So they have translated that word pneuma into spirits. Most uh, New Testament translations, you will find the word spirit when you find him. And let me just take a pause, real quick. There are many unbelievably helpful apps that you can download and have the original language of the Bible at your fingertips. One of them is called Literal Word. I would encourage you, if you have an iPad or a phone and would like to dig into the original language of the Bible, which I think I find very helpful, and maybe maybe you don't, maybe I should not even know, but it's called Literal Word. There's another app called Blue Letter Bible. You can do the same thing. It's just a little bit harder. Literal Word's amazing. Okay, back to the sermon. Well, uh, pneuma, Greek, a spirit which is actually a a much better English parallel because even in English, we say things like this. He's got spirits. Don't we say that? Uh, Don't we talk about things like team spirits? And back in high school, you had team spirit. Okay, what do they mean? (laughs) Do they mean he's got a whole lot of disembodied dead people in him? No. Do they mean, where's your school specter? No. (laughs) No, they mean something like, willpower. That's what they mean. They mean something like energy or enthusiasm or even faith when they say he's got spirit, right? They mean he's got passion. He's got desire. Yeah, he's going to see this thing through. You got spirit? You You got the will to see this through no matter what the cost? They're talking about heart, aren't they? Yeah. They're talking about the will to push that's, that's actually really helpful, and it's a pretty good English translation because even in English, and this is the difficulty, even in English, words can have two, three, four meanings. Well, the same is in Hebrew or Greek. You can say spirit and think of, oh, that's a disembodied spirit. It's a soul that doesn't have, you know, or you can think willpower or passion. This, here's where it gets interesting. In the New Testament, there's a couple times where they translate the word pneuma into breath. Revelations eleven eleven. but after three days and a half, a pneuma of life from God entered them. A breath, Revelations 13, 15, it was, it was allowed to give breath, pneuma, pneuma, to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak. Well, it's interesting now, isn't it? Sometimes translated ghost, sometimes spirit, uh, and sometimes breath. In both these passages, what is this thing doing? Pneuma, what's it doing? It's animating something, isn't it? It's bringing something to life. Like when God breathed into the clay and brought it to life and called it man. And this is a good translation because it corresponds with the Hebrew word ruach quite well. is most, in Hebrew, remember Old Testament, is most often translated spirit, but it is also translated repetitively, wind, or breath, right? Because sometimes it just wouldn't make sense in English. But ruach, here it is, Judges 15, 19, translates uh, ruach into strength. Same word for the Spirit of God. When he drank, his ruach returned, and he revived. That's the Hebrew word for spirits, now, if they would have said his spirit returned, we might have thought, "Well, did he die?" But they aren't talking about death, are they? They're talking about what? Power. They're talking about ability. They're talking about vitality. Hmm? You ever go? I was just talking to Rosemary. She moved this week. She, when the whole day didn't eat some food, and by like six p.m., she wanted to collapse. You ever go a whole day without eating, and you don't? And so the new, the Old Testament would say, "Man, you just don't have the ruach." to keep going. You don't have the spirit. Nothing's animating you to have strength and vitality. Huh? That's interesting, isn't it? That's very different than how we, both in Hebrew and Greek, the word does not seem to mean disembodied spirit in most instances. It's more like a kind of strength, a kind of vitality and a kind of power and efficacy, a kind of ability, a kind of will. And as we know, there is a strength and power and vitality of man. And then there is strength and power and vitality of God. And those things are quite different. In fact, in the New Testament, what you'll see is they will differentiate this power by using a capital S. So when they are talking about the pneuma of God, what you're going to see in the New Testament is a capital S spirit. And when they're talking about the pneuma of man, your pneuma, your spirit, lowercase s, right? Another interesting translation in John 3, 7, New Testament. We're talking about Greek. Jesus said, this is so interesting. Do not marvel, this is what we read, that I said to you, you must be born again. The pneuma blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the pneuma. Same word, interpreted two different ways, because it just wouldn't make sense with the, fir- the spirit blows. Well, that's what he said. But he, they call it "wind," because of the context. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes. Every translator I could find translates this sentence the exact same way, right? And Hebrew is actually the same. He, uh, Exodus 10:13 says, "The Lord directed an east Ruach on the land." Wind." So what, what are we to get from this? that there is a kind of analogy between the Spirit of God and what? Wind, breath. We know wind as a power source today, don't we? The Bible says, yeah. Well, that's kind of like the Spirit of God. It's an analogy within the language itself. Wind is a strength that comes from somewhere else. You can hear it. It makes an impact where it goes, uh, but there's a bit of a mystery to it, isn't there? Jesus says, you know what? People that are full of my Numa, full of my spirit, they're kind of like that. People that are full of the spirit, they have a kind of strength and love and ability that does not come from them. And quite honestly, there's a bit of a mystery to it. It's kind of like the wind. But oh man, it makes an impact. Oh, you can see the impact. It does a whole lot of things. Do you know the first time in the Bible, someone is said to be filled with the Ruach of God, Old Testament Hebrew, the Ruach of God? Think about it. Think about the Old Testament. Think about You grew up in church. Remember the felt board? Maybe it's when Elijah like raises a kid from the dead in 1 Kings 17. That would make sense, right? Maybe it's when Moses raises his staff, the water's split. You could say, oh yeah, that's a kind of crazy power, you know? In fact, it's, it's funny uh, when it talks about, and it talks about when he does an east wind blows and it causes the waters to be divided. Guess what that word is? Ruach, right? No. Uh, those aren't actually the first places you see someone being filled with the Spirit of God in the Bible. Uh, the first time you see is in Genesis 41, when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. And actually, Pharaoh himself is the one who says, uh, Can we find a man like this, in whom there is a uh, ruach Elohim, divine spirit? It's very interesting. Uh, the first time it's noted in the Bible, it is not a Jew who notices it. It's fascinating. Right? But the first time we see God filling someone with the Spirit is actually in Exodus 31, when that language is actually used. And it's this guy named Bezalel. Let's all say it together. No, just kidding. And it says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, what for? Oh, wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Oh, all kinds of craftsmanship. Oh, and artistic design for work and gold and silver, and bronze, in the cutting of stones for settings, and then the carvings of wood so that he may work in all craftsmanship. That's interesting, isn't it? That was to make the tabernacle. The spirit of God filled this man for what? With what? Expertise, skill, ability to do. For Joseph, it's the ability to understand dreams. For Bezael, it's the ability to craft things with excellence. That's so cool. Like, I want, I want some of that. Like, you should see me try to do crown molding. Gross. Like, it's horrible. I'm horrible at it, right? God, by his spirit, gives gifts, abilities to men. And some of those gifts are astoundingly supernatural. And some of them are as normal as planing a piece of wood to create artistic design. And yet, all of them can have about them the very essence of God when his hand is on the reins of our life. Another interesting example, in Joshua 2.11, the same word ruach is translated courage. NASB says, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no ruach remained in any man. NIV, KJV, RSV, all translate that courage. Was that God's ruach or man's ruach or both? Or did one cause the other? Man can be full of this, his spirit, right? He has a kind of strength and vitality, right? And that's kind of a common grace. Anyone can have that, right? But, but man can also be full of capital S spirit, spirit of God himself for God's purposes in the earth, right? And that's quite different than normal strength, isn't it, right? Because it has behind it God himself for his own purposes. And this is exactly what you find in the Bible in the Old and New Testament. God's spirit coming and falling or rushing or filling people. Okay, First uh, Samuel ten says the Spirit of God rushed on Saul, and he prophesied. First Chronicles eighteen says the Spirit clothed someone named Amasai. Isaiah sixty one, it's a famous uh, uh, Christmas verse, or no? Not, well, no, it's Jesus' it's a messianic verse, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The what? Ruach. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for what? Oh, because He's anointed me to do what? Bring. Good news to the poor, because he's sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. It's God's spirit coming, rushing, falling on someone to achieve his purposes in the earth. And it has a purpose. So many of you may be aware that there are plenty of English words that are derived from Greek roots. You guys know that, right? Uh, Pneuma is one of them in the New Testament, the Greek word pneuma. Uh, Anyone want to take a stab at what words we have that have pneuma in the beginning? Anyone? Pneumatic. Pneumatic. Very good. Also pneumonia, which is not a better, not a good example, but it's also the same because it has to do with air sacs in your lungs. Matt, you can back me up. Um, Pneumatic. Pneumology. It's having to do with air in the body. Uh, Pneumatic tools are powered by what? Air. Uh, Even how pneuma has influenced our language, it gives us a very helpful parallel. Let's just think of pneumatic tools for a moment, right? Pneumatic tools are powered by an unseen force. (laughs) Pressurized air, you can't see it. I've got a little Brad nailer, right, that I butcher crown molding with, right? Uh, I don't recommend playing, uh, with those pneumatic tools, I almost put a nail through my finger several times. Like when you're holding like the side, and like and then it comes out. Anyone ever done that one? Like whoo, a little scary. Um, however, uh, if you disconnect the power, anyone ever mess with pneumatic tools? Like so loud, oh so loud. If you disconnect the power, you can play with it all day long. You can, I almost bought it today. Just pointed at you, just to, no, but that's dumb. Now let my kids play with it all day long without the, you know, it doesn't have power. Don't worry, babe. Doesn't have power, right? Point at anyone. No. <laughs> Uh, it can't hurt you without power. It also can't help you without power. It can't do what it was meant to do because it's been disconnected from the source. You could say the nail gun no longer has efficacy. You know what that word means? It means the ability, a power to do what it was intended to do. That's efficacy. If something is highly efficacious, it always accomplishes, it never fails, always does. It achieves its intended purpose. The efficacy of the tool is taken away without the pneumatic power. And it reminds me of this passage in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3. And it it talks about a group of people who have a form of godliness, but they have denied its power. It means they have a structure of religion, it means they have rules, they have ceremonies. They might even be the people leading on the stage, huh? But they've denied the strength of the thing. There's no efficacy to it, there's no power. No results, no real life impact, no transform, transformation. It's a, it's a structure of Christianity, cultural Christianity maybe but it has no power. It can't actually make you into the kind of person who loves someone. It looks good on the outside. It's a form, it's an appearance of, but it lacks the power, ability to actually change. That's Christianity without the Holy Spirit. It's like you got a really nice DeWalt framer. Anyone in tools know, oh, okay. That dude knows what he's doing from all the yellow on his tools, right? Some of you are like, boo, Milwaukee, right? Or even better, even better, it's even better. This dude, like he's got some obscure German tool company. Never even heard of that name, right? Like only elite pros can afford that kind of gun. Like insider pro elite framer, all right? Cool, but if it's disconnected, if you forget the compressor, man, no amount of expertise or knowledge is going to help you that day. It ain't got no power to it. It can be the most legit, elite, sophisticated, right? Hip, cool, trendy church you've ever heard of. But if it is, connect, if it is disconnected from the Holy Spirit, it ain't got no power, dude. And it ain't going to transform nothing in your life. might even make you feel good. Like, you might get that. might feel good. might be cool. You could walk around strutting it with your belt, you know? <laughs> right? So this is what Christianity becomes to a lot of people. Religion in general becomes this for a lot of people. It becomes a means of expressing superiority over others. But it has no real power to make you into the kind of person who actually loves. Or the kind of person who has the ability, the power to say no to sin. Or the kind of person who can actually forgive Others are the kind of person who can actually be genuinely joyful. And it's why we've said over and over, like your body is dead without your spirit, so too your faith is dead without the Holy Spirit breathing power into it. It will not have efficacy in your life. There is such a thing as having a form of godliness, but having no power. Not power just to love, power to do anything, anything for God, even obey. That list in 2 Timothy 3 is describing people who have a form of godliness, but deny it denies its power. Dude, it's describing people with zero self-control. Their only loyalty is to their appetites. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, slant, without self-control, not treacherous, reckless, swole, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These guys, they have an appearance of godliness, but they have denied its power. Second, I mean, Colossians 2 talks about how human rules, You know, human rules, even the ones that look really religious and self-disciplined, they say, oh dude, those lack any real power in overcoming fleshly indulgences. But but dude, the pneuma? The pneuma of God? Oh, dude, we're we're talking about real power. The spirit of God? Oh, dude, now you're talking about like real power to become free from sin. Because his spirit is the animating force of all those that belong to him. His spirit is the animating force of all. His spirit gives ability, y'all, strength, will, heart, push. In fact, in Romans 8, it says, dude, the law, the rule, the rule of the pneuma of life, capital S, has set you free in Jesus from the rule of sin and death, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the empowering force, the wind in the sail of Christian freedom. So then you have to ask yourself, am I free? Is that how you would describe your soul, free? And if not, I would like to suggest to you, it's not because you're not trying hard enough. It might be that you simply hit the limitation of your human strength, and that you need something stronger, some, someone with more power, whose goal is to make you free, to image him in the world, right? God wants to so fill you with power and life and ability to love that it spills out over you to those around you, so much so that your life begins to spread good news, Your life just naturally begins to meet the needs of those around you. Your life just starts serving others. And guess what happens? You begin actually living like Jesus. You begin actually living like Jesus. You know why? Because it is the spirit of Jesus himself. In fact, several times in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is just referred to as the spirit of Christ in you, doing the things the spirit of Christ, meeting the needs of people around you, Loving inside of sacrifice. How about that one? Like, I'll sacrifice for you, but you're gonna know it. Huh? Now, Jesus loves inside sacrifice. Jesus is, is patient inside of suffering. I'm gonna suffer. Everyone's gonna know it, right? Oh, Jesus, he's patient in suffering. Jesus, joyful in enduring, right? And it seems clear to me when we submit to the Holy Spirit, the pneuma of God, we, when, when we give his spirit real leadership in our life, like real leadership, the Bible, the Romans being led by the spirit. That's the language of the New Testament. When we are led by the spirit by actually following his lead, man, oh, we're transformed, like empowered to act, to serve, to love, to give, to obey in a way that you never could on your own steam. That's why Christianity has full of songs about surrender. You guys, does that ever strike you as odd? Christianity, this this like, uh, you know, high moral ethic, you know? Like Christianity is like up there, you know, love your enemies, you know? Forgive those who persecute you. Like that's a crazy moral ethic, you know? And you ever wonder like, dude, don't you think we should have songs about like, you know, like pumping ourselves up? Shouldn't we? Like, I, I, you ever try to love someone who doesn't, I mean, no, much less your enemy, <laughs> right? Anyway, love people in my own house sometimes. they like, they've said they love me and I'm struggling, right? Love your own enemy? Well, so Christianity is full of all these songs about what, surrender. Such an interesting thing. The way of being filled with the spirit is in many ways a way of surrender, of saying, dude, I've hit the limitation of my strength. And, thus, and then all of a sudden, all these passages make sense about, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Oh, I get it. I get it. Because these are the people who have hit the limitation of their strength and have said, in all earnestness, God, I, I cannot do this. Oh, I, I can't. I can't love. My, I can't even love people in my own house without your spirit, God. That's why we sing songs of surrender. It's this idea of hitting the limitations of your spirit, a little less and acknowledging the profound need of God's spirit to help and act in a way now that is not really natural to you. In fact, you know what the word for a lot of the ethic of Christianity is? Supernatural. Forgiveness? Dude, loving your enemies? (laughs) Doing good to those? who—that's not human love, y'all. That's not human love, y'all. That's not human. We can't do that, right? That's not natural strength. That's supernatural. There are some things God's told you to do, and he's not, he's just, do it, do it. But there are some things that only he can do, right? And I get the sense, really, that in scripture, God wants a kind of partnership with humanity. That it's not either or. It's not only my strength or only God's strength. It's both combined. God wants to empower your will. God wants to empower your efforts to obey, your will to push, your passion. Because it seems clear to me, he will not himself become an oppressor or force you to love him or force you to believe or force you to repent. That's not how the God of the universe works. But to any who would believe, who would repent, right? Who would surrender their limited uh, power, their limited spirit to his Holy Spirit. Man, scripture says he's going to come in and the Holy Spirit's going to abide with you. And he's going to, enable you to live the kind of life of joy and peace and self-control that his spirit will begin to exert influence over you if you let him to live the kind of life you could never live on your own stream. His own spirit, energy, vitality, strength. But you have, a, you have a choice, friend. Do you want his spirit? Or are you content with your own? Let me just rephrase it as we close up. Do you feel able to act and obey? Do you feel able? Do you ever get tired of knowing the right thing to do, but not having the power and ability to actually do it? it I, I, I love this. You know how if you ever have, a, a, if you're stuck in life, sure none of you ever get stuck in life, I get stuck in life sometimes and I ask other people for advice or other people get stuck and they ask me for advice. Isn't it amazing? Like when someone asks you for advice, you're like, oh, you need to do this and this and that. It's so clear to you that they just need to do this, right? Or, you know, someone, you know, or they ask you, you know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? You guys know that dynamic we're talking about, right? But then in your own life, you ask someone for advice and they tell, it's so clear to them. Oh, your problem is this, that, and that, and you just need to do this. And all of a sudden, you're like, well, it just doesn't, it's not that easy. You know? Why? I'll tell you why. Because in your own life, it's not about knowledge. (laughs) Right? It's about will, it's about heart to act, it's about courage to do the thing you know you ought to be doing. Someone else might, oh, you need to do this, that, and that, and that. Yeah, it's easy right? But me? Oh, yeah. It's about the ability to actually do it. Where are you stuck? Where do you know the right thing, but do not have the power and ability to do it? And what if in that place you began to yield to God and ask him to fill you? What if in that place you ask God, Lord, please fill me with power and strength? Like what, what might happen Do you think he's the kind of God who gives freely? Do you think he's the kind of God who, what scripture is going to say, delights to give? It seems that he is waiting to be asked in many instances. Right. So we're going to come to the table like we do every week, and after that we'll pray as normal and we'll be dismissed. But this is what we're going to do today. Uh, We're going to leave this room open for prayer. And if there's... An area in your life where you are stuck, where you need or want some some strength, like the strength of God himself to intervene on your behalf. If there's an area of your life where you're hitting the limitations of your wisdom, you're hitting the limitations of your strength and power, dude, we're gonna leave this room so you can come up here and pray. We got people we love and trust who will pray with you. Or there's this one too, man. If you've never asked God's Holy Spirit to fill you Why why don't we just pray? I mean, why don't we just ask God and see if he answers and see if he gives you strength and power that you don't have in and of yourself? There's really not much risk, is there? Are are you willing to believe that God's the kind of God who wants to give you good things, who wants to enable you to live the kind of life of your dreams? Have you read the New Testament? Have you read the kind of life described in the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? The God himself wants to give you the ability to walk that kind of life out. I believe he does. Let's stand and pray.